We turn now to the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. We'll read through this chapter. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so, and God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and the morning were the second day. Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, an herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night, to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Then God said, Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves, with which the waters abound bounded according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing, and beasts of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Then God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing 
that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given to you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. We also turn in our book of forms and prayers to Belgian Confession, Article 12. Article 12 on the creation of all things. We believe that the Father created heaven and earth and all other creatures from nothing when it seemed good to him by his word, that is to say, by his Son. He has given all creatures their being, form, and appearance, and their various functions for serving their creator. Even now he also sustains and governs them all according to his eternal providence and by his infinite power, that they may serve man in order that man may serve God. He has also created the angels good, that they might be his messengers and serve his elect. Some of them have fallen from the excellence in which God created them into eternal perdition, and the others have persisted and remained in their original state by the grace of God. The devils and evil spirits are so corrupt that they are enemies of God and of everything good. They lie in wait for the church and every member of it like thieves, with all their power to destroy and spoil everything by their deceptions. So then, by their own wickedness, they are condemned to everlasting damnation, daily awaiting their torments. For that reason, we detest the error of the Sadducees, who deny that there are spirits and angels, and also the error of the Manichaeans, who say that the devils originated by themselves, being evil by nature, without having been corrupted. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, way back in 1971, that's uh, before many of you were born, uh, John Lennon, one of the famed Beatles, and uh, Yoko Ono wrote a song called Imagine. And that song has been called the Song of the Century. And uh, it's won a Grammy Hall of Fame award. And since 2005, this song is played in New York City on uh, New Year's Eve, uh, just before the ball is lowered, bringing in a new year. And uh, I understand that tradition goes back to 1986. Imagine, imagine no heaven, no hell below us, above us only sky, no religion, nothing to kill or die for, living for today. In other words, imagine no God, no creator, no lawgiver, no judge. And the fact is that uh, that this imagination, this lying imagination, has uh, become a persistent fantasy of much of higher education for decades. It's been a fantasy that is assumed in uh, many science textbooks. It's uh, a fantasy that's assumed in philosophy courses, and social studies of every kind. 
whether it's race studies or gender studies, uh, to borrow a phrase that might be familiar with somebody, with some of you, we might ask, well, how is that working out? How, how is that really working out? Does the world now live as one? In peace, as this song imagines, in this fantasy world, with no need for greed or possessions, where we enjoy the brotherhood of man, sharing all the world. Karl Marx, the father of socialist communism, called religion the opium of the people. In other words, it's it's a drug. Religion is a drug to dull people's uh, misery while they live in an oppressive world, which uh, has only one solution, which would be the socialist communist state. From the time immemorial, we might say, but certainly Karl Marx has had a big influence on this desire to remove God from the world. Get rid of religion was the underlying assumption of this description of religion as a drug. Get rid of religion. And many people have tried to get rid of religion. And uh, we might ask the question, does that mean that people no longer have need for drugs? Does that mean that they no longer need any kind of opiates? Does that mean that there's no need for pot stores on every corner of the street almost? I know I'm using an old-fashioned word. That's what it was called when I was a teenager. Pot. Dope. People that smoked that stuff were called potheads. Now it's kind of respectable. There still, still seems to be a demand for it. An increasing demand. But getting rid of God, does that really uh, bring about the kind of inner peace so that there's no need for violence and there's no need for despair, there's no smash and grabs? Does it mean that children are safer today? Does it mean that women are treated better? Does that mean that slavery has been abolished from the earth? Well, even to ask those questions uh, is obviously rhetorical because things don't seem to be getting much better as people remove God from their world. The first question of the children's catechism asks, Who made you? Who made you? Imagine not having an answer to that question. That, that pulls the rug of all meaning out from under our feet. That would mean that there is really no foundation for understanding ourselves. No foundation for understanding the world in which we live. It's gone. And any talk about the value of life, any talk about self-worth, any talk about loving your neighbor is without any good answer to the question, why? Why should I love my neighbor? Why should I imagine that my life has any value and significance at all if it's simply a chance product of an impersonal process? Why should I love my neighbor? Where can I find meaning at all? We have the answer to this question. The children have an answer to this question. God. God made me. Every person is made by God. Made by God, made for God, answerable to God. The doctrine of creation is the first point of biblical revelation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's the theme of Article 12 concerning the creation of all things. And we're going to be looking at the first part of uh, this article this evening, and Lord willing, we'll continue with uh, this 
article the next time, but we're going to be considering the wonder of creation from this article. And that really involves considering the wonder of the Creator in such a way that teaches us to worship Him, to worship Him with our hearts and mouths and lives. And we begin by considering the sovereignty of the Creator, that He is the absolute Lord of all, and that He is eternal. And we can see that as we reflect upon what our catechism says, that... uh The Father created heaven and earth and all other creatures from nothing when it seemed good to him. Now, that's time language, when it seemed good to him. And actually, when you reflect upon that phrase, it really involves a distinction between time and eternity. That is, it involves a distinction between all created reality and the eternal God. Because God's eternity means that unlike any created thing or being, God had no beginning. He is eternal. He's not a time-bound, time-defined being. I think we can see the point if you imagine going back from the the creation of the world to before that time and and farther back before that time and, and farther back and farther back. Millions of years, billions of years, trillions of years. We we have to use time language. But you would never get back to a point in which God had a beginning. And if we were to think that way and require that way of thinking, then we would have to ask the question, well, if there was no beginning, how could God ever arrive at a point where he would create the world? Well, that way of thinking assumes that God is somehow on a timeline. And he created the world at a certain point on that timeline on which he exists. But those are absolutely wrong categories. God is eternal. That means that he doesn't live on a timeline. Time is a created thing. Time is the result of God's creative work. Only God is eternal. As opposed to any imaginable kind of thing. And that includes any imaginable kind of explosive gas or any matter, or any kind of potential for development that would eventually, over billions and billions of years, result in a world. Matter, by definition, is distinct from God. And it's defined in terms of time. God is eternally distinct from his creation. And that means that he is in no way identified with creation. That's pantheism. The idea that God is in everything, that God kind of is everything, that everything is kind of an emanation from the being of God, and that fails to recognize the Bible's teaching of the distinction from the creature and the creator. There's an absolute distinction from, of, of these things. God is no way identified with creation, nor did God need any created thing. God did not need any created being in order to somehow perfect him, nor does creation have any kind of independent existence. We're going to consider the doctrine of providence in Article 13. But here already that subject is introduced when it says, even now, he also sustains and governs them all. All things which God created owe their continued existence to God's power. They have no independent existence. 
As if you could imagine no God and coherently imagine the continuation of anything. Because a worldview shaped by the reality of God the Creator also involves the fact that in Him, and that's actually we've spoken of with reference to Christ, in Him all things consist. All things are upheld by the word of His power. Also speaking of Jesus Christ in Hebrews chapter 11, or uh, 1. So we're confronted with the wonder of creation as we reflect upon God's sovereignty as the absolute Lord, the eternal God. And our wonder increases as we consider the manner of his creation. The how of creation is a cause of wonder and worship. And there's two reasons for that. And the first reason is that it's a cause of wonder and worship because of we, what we do not know. And there's a lot that we just do not know and can't imagine when it comes to the how of creation. We don't know uh, so many of the details of the process of creation, or we don't know why there is a process at all revealed in Genesis chapter 1. And that led one of the early church fathers, St. Augustine, to the notion that creation was instantaneous, that everything came to uh, being at once by God's power. And you might say, well, yes, that that honors the reality of God's sovereign power, but it doesn't really respect the text any more than people who say, well, it must have taken millions and millions of years for this creation to come about. Because the Word of God teaches otherwise. The Word of God teaches that there was a process, and that involved God bringing things into existence, but it also involved Him ordering them differentiating between light and darkness, dividing the waters above from the waters below, dividing the waters from the land, a process of bringing things into existence and of ordering them and arranging them over the period of six days until God reached that point in which he made the pinnacle of his creation and placed him in a ready-made world as the crowning act of creation. Now, that's the creation of man. It's like the narrative slows down when God says, let us make man in our own image. And God forms man in his own likeness, male and female in the image of God. And then God speaks to them as those in his image who are able to listen to his word and to receive it and understand it unlike any other creature and intentionally be fruitful and multiply, and intentionally seek to exercise dominion over the world for God's honor and glory. But as to the details of this process, there are many questions that we can ask that we can't answer very clearly, and that should be a cause of wonder and amazement and worship, and not any kind of speculation that would call into a question the, the the credibility of the account that God gives to us of his creative work. But another reason for wonder and worship is what we do know about the how of creation. And that is that he created all things out of nothing. Not that we can really conceptualize that or understand it, but we know that it's true. We know that everything that exists has its origin and beginning in things that did not exist. Everything that is visible came from what ultimately was invisible because it was non-existent. 
We confess that God created the world out of nothing. We do so on the basis of Scripture. I'm alluding already to uh, Hebrews chapter 11, where it says, by faith we understand, we understand, that, that that's knowledge, right? That the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. And when we read the account of creation, we hear again and again and again, and God said, and God said, and it was so. He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. And we wonder and we worship at this creative power of God through his word, that is, through his son. Now, the Belgian Confession in connection with creation reminds us, according to scripture, that God created the world, not only with the involvement and presence and work of the Holy Spirit, as we read in Genesis 1, but by his son. We see the sovereignty of the creator likewise in the the wonder of creation when we consider some of its characteristics, the tremendous variety and beauty and perfection of his creation. He has given all creatures their being, form, and appearance and their various functions for serving their creator. Psalm 104 celebrates the great variety of God's creative wisdom and power. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. We take great delight in observing the variety in God's creation. You've seen one, you've seen them all. You've heard that expression. Actually, that's rarely true. There are very few things that would fit that description. You've seen identical twins. What a delight. We take pleasure in seeing God's handiwork in identical twins. But you don't look at one and say, well, I've seen one. I don't need to see the other one. Right? Because with all their likeness of appearance, of personality, in many respects, the fact remains that they are not identical. Oh, they're not fraternal. Yeah, there's this medical distinction. But they are unique souls and unique bodies. There's very little that is identical. We're not simply talking about human beings. Ask cows. Or ask farmers, rather. They'll tell you about their cows and the different personalities they have. Sorry. From puppies to chickens, they not only look different if you look closely, but if they live in your house, you'll find out that they act differently. Isn't that simply astounding? Isn't it astounding that of the billions of people on this on this earth, no two of them are exactly the same in terms of appearance? their genetic makeup, their personality, their souls. It's astounding. That's part of the delight that we ought to have in creation. And we ought to delight in creation. It is our duty to observe creation and to praise God for it. The Psalms are full of such expressions of worship because of God's manifold work. It's our duty to search and to unlock the wonders of creation, at least some of them, because in a, in a way, the infinite mind of God and the amazing creativity of God is on display. In the great varieties of fish, the differences of shape and color and function and purpose. And we see that they do have their unique uh, characteristics and their unique function 
And the doctrine of creation encourages scientific study because it involves the assumption that there is a kind of order that can be observed. There is a coherent, logical relationship between cause and effect and their function, their purpose, and their benefits to other creatures or to the whole ecology. They have their place by God's design and God's purpose. And that leads not only to uh, the study of God's world, but a study that leads us to wonder at Him. Another reason for the wonder of creation is uh, the perfection of creation, and that includes the completion of creation. And what I mean by that is that the Bible teaches that God created the, the earth, the heavens and the earth, within the space of six days. And then he was done. The work of creation was finished. Now, he still upholds and he governs and rules over what he has made. But his creating work is done. I didn't read the first two verses of uh, the next chapter. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Now think of the fact that we confess that God created all creatures, giving them their being, form, and appearance, and their various functions. That's a description of creation. And the Bible says that he finished that work. And evolution says, no, it's evolution that is giving creatures their form, and their function, and their purpose. And that's an ongoing process. And we say, no, no. God created all things. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no development among uh, different creatures. You know, there is a distinction. I believe it's a legitimate distinction between what's called macroevolution and microevolution. Yes, there are changes that develop among a variety of creatures related to environment, related to a whole variety of things. But they don't change species. They don't cross over into different kinds, to use the language of Scripture. Each brought forth according to its kind. And even the so-called theistic view of evolution, that God, well, yes, he's the creator because he's supervising this evolutionary process. They do not respect the scripture. That is a view that confuses creation with providence. Creation is a finished work. Providence by which God upholds and governs all things, yes, that's an ongoing work. But the theistic evolution view confuses these things and blends them together. That's contrary to Scripture. God has given all things their shape and their form. We see then the sovereignty of God, and the wonder of creation. When he made the heavens and the earth, and the way he made them, and what he has made. But then secondly, we want to move on to consider, as we already have been in many ways, uh, the goodness of creation. In Psalm 30, 33, verse 5, it says, The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Psalm 104, we, we, uh, heard that, uh, the earth is full of your possessions, but the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. The concluding verse to chapter 1 of the Bible is, God saw everything that he had made and indeed, it was very good. 
And Psalm 33 doesn't say the earth was filled with the goodness of the Lord, but it says the earth is filled with the goodness of the Lord. And what that means is that man's fall into sin did not obliterate that goodness. Didn't destroy it. It also means that the basic structure of God's created order is good. And we live in a world that wages war against that, that truth. And people reject the goodness of creation as established by God. The goodness of creation as it concerns such things as the difference between male and female. Male and female made he them in his image. The relationships between male and female as God established them at creation. The relationship between mankind and the rest of creation as established by God at creation. And the world in which we live wages war against these things. But we believe that this basic structure, which uh, in some sense we say is natural because it's rooted in creation, cannot be obliterated, cannot be destroyed. And if you fight against it, you're fighting against reality. And that does not work out very well. We also reject the idea that matter or the created world as it is, is inherently evil. See, that's the, that's the, the error of the Manichaeans, right? They deny the corruption of the devil and spirits and rather uh, taught that they have their being of themselves. Well, that means that they also have a kind of eternal existence as evil beings. And that leads to a false view of reality. And it extends over a whole variety of issues. It extends to a false view of the body, for example. Sometimes the body has been called the prison house of the soul. And if people think of the body that way, well, then they'll think of salvation in terms of escaping the body rather than the redemption of the body. And the resurrection of the body won't be part of their doctrine. And they'll resort to a kind of mysticism and the idea that the ideal uh, religious life is a, is a life that escapes the body because the body means nothing or it's evil, something to get rid of. Or the idea that biological sex and gender can be at odds or be in conflict with one another. And people might say things like, well, I'm in the wrong body. Or they'll act or think or talk as if God really made a mistake. Because biologically, in terms of traditional definitions of sex, I'm male, but actually I'm a female in a male's body. As if God was confused for a moment, perhaps. The result is this kind of imprisonment. And a negative view of created reality and a negative view of the body can also lead to a false method of sanctification by mistaking the problem, because then our bodies can be seen as the problem. Now, the Bible teaches, indeed, that the body, that is our, our desires, that are rooted in our physical bodies can become, and they do become, the occasion of sin. And that's why, like Paul says, I discipline my body. In other words, legitimate desires of our bodily cravings can go way out of bounds. The desires themselves are good. They're from God. But because of sin, we go way too far. And that brings harm. 
or we give in to unlawful desires, unlawful cravings, which have to be mortified. If you through the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Yes, indeed, our bodies become the occasion of sin and temptation, but the problem is not with the body. The problem is with the depravity of our nature. In that connection, uh, we must not think that when the Bible uses the word flesh in a negative way, that it's describing our bodies. As if the problem, again, is with our physical being. Not with our minds, not with our hearts. According to the Bible, the language of flesh refers to the fallen, depraved nature that includes the desires of the mind. Things like pride and envy. Not simply physical uh, cravings that have gone awry. It's our corrupt nature. And a failure to appreciate this also leads to false measures, false definitions of holiness, right? Isn't that, isn't that really what's at the root of the Roman Catholic notion that if you're going to be really consecrated to God, then you must remain celibate because the single celibate life is more holy and pure than the married life. That's reflective of a negative view of the body. That kind of thinking is an assault on the goodness of creation and the fact that God made them male and female and they were joined in a one flesh union before the entrance of sin and they had God's blessing upon that. So there are many practical and harmful ways in which a failure to appreciate the goodness of creation has bad consequences. The goodness of creation means likewise that evil is not equally ultimate or eternal. See, that's the Manichaean idea, that there are these two eternal principles. There is God and good, and then there's the devil and evil spirits, bad. And it's like they're in competition, and the outcome is rather uncertain. Actually, you might say, this is really the present view of evil in the world in which we live. People who deny creation do so because they reject the word of God. If they reject the word of God, neither do they have an understanding of the fall into sin. And then they treat evil as just the way things are. As if the misery, the suffering, the trouble, the violence in this world is part of created reality. That it's structural in its character. There's no escaping from it. Yes, we know that evil is real, but it's a corruption of what is good. It is rebellion against the good. And we'll consider that more next time when we look at devils and uh, Satan and evil spirits. We need to be clear that sin is a perversion of, and it's a departure from created good. And that means that God is not the good side of two eternal opposing forces, nor is God the author of sin. Sin is not embedded in reality. And it's a lie for people to tell themselves, well, it's embedded in my reality. That's just the way I am. How can you condemn me? How can you judge me for anything that I say or feel or do? Because that's who I am. No, it's not who you are as created by God. It's who we are as fallen from God and in rebellion against God. And brothers and sisters, that's not bad news. That's good news. Because if, if evil is structural in reality and it pertains simply to the way things are, there's no hope in that. There's no redemption. 
You deny creation, you deny the fall, you give up on the thought of redemption and salvation. They go together. God created all things good. Man's fall into sin didn't obliterate that goodness. It cannot remove those structures that God has designed. And evil and good are not two eternally opposed purposes or powers. Evil is a departure from the good. It's rebellion against the good. And it will not win. And it will not last. And the goodness of creation also involves in the purpose of creation. Our confession really places man at the center of the created order. I use the language of man being the pinnacle of creation. That's expressed also in our in our catechism where it describes all these creatures that are sustained and governed according to God's eternal providence and by his infinite power that they may serve man. Well, the previous paragraph says that he has given all creatures their being, form, and appearance and their various functions for serving their creator. Here it says they are upheld for the service of man. Well, which is it? Man is called to serve God by his place in creation, by his use of creation, right? There we go back to uh, the commission that God gave man at creation, where he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air. In other words, rule this world for my glory. Magnify me in the way you enjoy my gifts, in the way you work with them, in the way you serve me through them. All creatures were placed under the dominion of man, and uh, that position is not withdrawn after the fall because man's purpose to serve God through creation is not withdrawn after the fall. Rather, that defines man's sinfulness. He uses creation for his own advancement, for his own pleasure, for his own glory. He exercises that dominion indeed, but in a corrupt way. There's really practical applications of this also for our understanding of life. Because this teaching gives value and meaning to work in this world. Whether you're a carpenter or a trucker or a farmer or a homemaker, every kind of lawful calling, this kind of work is not a sideline to the real business of life. It is the business of life. To serve God as creatures in His creation, using that creation in our work and in our relationships, for the honor of God. But secondly, that also shows the need for redemption, doesn't it? Because we fail to glorify God by our sin. And sin does not remove our significance before God. See, that's a message that this lost world needs to hear. There's something about the doctrine of creation that really shows the importance of every person. They're made by God. They're accountable to God. God takes a very personal interest in them such that if they fail to honor him, he's going to judge them. He's going to judge them personally for what they've done with their lives. And that's a frightening thought for sinners. But it's a thought that in a way testifies to their significance as human beings made by God. They're not just accidental. They're not less just purposeless products of an impersonal evolution. They're made by God. They will face Him. A war on creation is carried on in an effort to remove 
the judge instead of facing the problem. It's interesting, isn't it, that Psalm 104, this this psalm of creation, this uplifting psalm that leads us to marvel at God's handiwork, seems to end on such a dark note. May sinners be consumed from the earth and the wicked be no more. And then, bless the Lord, O my soul, praise the Lord. A world that wages war against God and wants to remove him from creation, it will not succeed. They will be removed from his creation. They will be removed from the earth. And there will be a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This world will be purified in God's judgment. It won't be destroyed. Sin's not going to have the last world word over creation. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. You recognize that language, heavens and earth, right? That takes us back to Genesis 1. But those who lived in rebellion against the Creator, they'll be placed in outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yes, the reality of creation shows our need for redemption. And it also shows our need for that one by whom God created the world because it's the same one by whom he has redeemed sinners and provide an atonement so that rebels like us who fail to honor and glorify God might be forgiven, might be restored to a purpose, to the real meaning of our existence, to a reason for joy, a reason for loving our neighbor, a reason for seeking to do good in hope. Amen.